Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. Greetings, constant listeners. It's your boy, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. Today, we're unlocking an older Patreon exclusive episode from the Dairy Private Library. This one dates back to last summer. August 2020 to be exact, and finds the losers joined by score-to-death author J. Blake Fischera as they name the 10 greatest Stephen King scores. It's a great debate, one of our finest, I might say, with plenty of insights into your favorite sounds in King's Dominion. It should be noted that since recording this episode, Blake's second volume of score-to-death has hit stores, so you can purchase it now over at scoretodeath.com. And the book features even more interviews with the greatest composers of the horror genre. And I gotta say, it's it's a pretty perfect summer read. You can bring both of them to the beach and cool off with the flicks later at night. Hey, not a bad weekend. Anyways, I've jabbered enough, so enjoy this episode, and I'll be seeing you over long days and pleasant nights. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. To another episode of the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. I'm your host for today, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. And if you have a sweet tooth, well, I have a special sweet treat for you. Uh, if you are a Romero fan, you'll notice that is a quote from Dawn of the Dead, a deep quote. It's not even a character, it's an announcer. Uh, anyway, as requested by our wonderful patron, Nadia Hatter, we're going to be discussing the music of King's Dominion. But as always, we're taking a slight detour on this episode. We're going to save all his musical references for another episode and instead focus strictly on the scores. We're talking Wendy Carlo, John Carpenter, Thomas Newman. I better stop there because I'm going to be spoiling too much of the list. But all the great composers that have given life to the adaptations of Stephen King. And because there are so many of them, dozens by our count, I put together a panel to vote on the 10 best scores in the King Canon. Joining me on that panel, all the way across town in Chicago is... This is Mackenzie making the silver bullet Gerber. Ooh. (laughs) And uh, I'm very excited because uh, I love scores. (laughs) You do love scores. Actually, I think out of all the losers, me and you might be the one that that probably listen to more scores than any other type of music, which is kind of problematic for me because I run a music pub, uh, publication. But um, <laughs> give me a score any day over anything else. I uh, I, I love them. Um, yeah, Mac, you know, I, I just love love to have that music playing in the background, whether it's on the train, walking around my 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 neighborhood, or. Or, or or even now, I should I know. put some some music on now. Um, <laughs> copyright infringement, be damned. Well, we used to do that on the podcast, and then I realized that there is copyright <laughs> infringement, and I had to go back to all 100 episodes and uh, scrub them all off. So 
Um, what if we just took the main theme, the the, the shining theme, just and just had it on repeat for for four hours? Here? You could. I, I think that's actually that you might actually be able to get away with that. We we have used this, the Shining music before because I think it, it, a lot of it, it might be public domain at this point. Anyway, oh, yeah. Mac, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm yeah. good. I'm 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 revved up and ready to go here. And Christine. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, let's get in that car and drive all the way down to, <laughs> as we always do with these introductions, uh, down to <laughs> Nashville, Tennessee. It's a long ride, so we'll have to stop along the way. Who we got down this there? Is, hey, this is Jen to the Rage Adams. <laughs> I like that. It has nothing to do with scores, but no. I just have been feeling that recently. I'm like, ah. Would have been interesting if, like, in your top ten that you sent in, it said, like, number two, the Rage carry two. <laughs> right. It's all the garbage influences, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Jen, how are you doing down there? Uh, doing okay. It's uh, not super hot today, so I got to take a walk, so that was nice. Oh, you know, nice. Listening to some scores oh, to be well, named soon. <laughs> we are going to be naming a bunch of scores, and I'm hoping that you actually were able to listen to us. I know that you take morning walks, and I'm wondering if mm-hmm. there are any scores out of here that uh, you would uh, go on a nice little jaunt for. And I'm not referencing the Stephen King short story. I just <laughs> meant a fun jaunt that you would go around, you know, around town. Yeah, I, I kind of did. I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts when I walk usually, but today I was listening to a lot of uh, scores, one on repeat. Because I just love it so much. I don't want to spoil it. Though, okay, we won't we won't go yeah. too deep into them. I already spoiled a couple of names that are <laughs> s- absolutely 100% on this list. But um, hopefully you <laughs> forgot about them, uh, and hopefully we forget about them too. Because we got a little we got a little drive ahead of us. Uh, Jen, get in the back seat. Uh, Christine uh, will oblige. We are going to drive <laughs> all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, up to New York City. Yes, the Big Apple, Sabaro, and my favorite, <laughs> the Empire State Building. <laughs> <laughs> we are here in the, oh, in the Big Apple, and who is here with us? I uh, I don't have any fancy nicknames, but uh, this is <laughs> this is Jay Blake, Jay Blake. or Jay Blake Fischera, depending on what you're listening to or reading. Well, when it comes to scores, I don't think anyone on this podcast or any podcast, for that matter, uh, involving uh, specifically even horror genres uh, or horror scores can speak to the authority that you can i i you are the the man the myth and legend who has written the bible on scores uh, score to death uh i've mentioned it multiple times on 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 this podcast uh blake when we talked before on my uh, previous show relevant content i talked about how love this book to death uh you've you've dedicated your life to one of the greatest mediums um out there uh how are you doing and uh what, what have you been up to in new york uh, I'm okay, hanging in there, uh, getting a little stir crazy, but uh, <laughs> just uh, working from home and finishing Scored to Death too. Can't wait! I cannot wait. Are you going to lean yeah. in on the whole like horror sequel element of just of this being a sequel to uh, your original book? That was the original plan, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, the publisher, whose idea it was, backtracked and said, let's just call it Score to Death 2. More kind of mm. conversations with <laughs> some of our greatest composers. Nice, nice. Well, I think excited. it had to do with, I think it had to do with he just didn't want any confusion uh, in terms of people thinking this was some kind of reissue of the first one. Or, but uh, uh, yeah. So this is an all new book with uh, 16 more conversations with horror movie composers. Are they any double dips? Uh, no. Some of them I or some of them were featured on the Score to Death podcast, mm-hmm. um, and those interviews 
in almost every case have additional material, kind of the Jay Blake cut of those uh, interviews and uh, some updates and stuff like that. But it's basically somewhere around half podcasts, uh, half interviews that were on the podcast, like I said, with additional material and half all new podcasts, but nobody from the first book. Very cool. When do you, when do you expect it to hit stores or, or at least uh, online stores? I'm hoping sometime this fall or uh, like early winter before Christmas. I'm hoping. Oh, nice, nice. I hope too. That would be a hell of a gift. Uh, or if if it does come out in the Halloween era, a great trick or treat. Um, hopefully a treat. But uh, <laughs> look, we got ten scores, ten scores ahead of us. And what I did here uh, was we I asked everyone on this panel to send in their top ten, uh, and we did. Um, we all did. And uh, I actually had to change mine during it because I saw some of your choices and I go, holy shit, I totally forgot that so-and-so did so-and-so score. So I took all those uh, top 10 lists and I collated them into one complete list, which is what you're going to hear on this episode today. And we're going to start with number 10. Uh, Personal favorite uh, of mine also because we've had uh, this composer on the podcast uh, last year. Uh, Number 10. In our, uh, the beginning of our top 10 is Christopher Young's 1993 score for George A. Romero's The Dark Half. Um, what, do we, what do we think about this, uh, this score? Mac, what are your thoughts on this one? You know, it's funny because, uh, you know, I became a big Young fan with Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. And because, uh, you know, I'm a big hellhead. <laughs> and uh, I, it's, when I listen to this, it's it's weird. I mean, when we when we watched the movie, I just immediately knew it was him, and uh, I think that the choir in this score seals mm-hmm. the deal for me. Uh, I, after you know, I was listening to some of these today, just in the background, just kind of get get some of it back in my head, and uh, I really love this score. Yeah. I don't love the movie, but uh, I do love. The, I did really like the book, and. Um, yeah, for me this was this was pretty pretty good up there. I mean, I have to pull up my own my own score here to see where <laughs> I, where this fell. Yeah, I uh, this one was a, a big favor with all of you. I, I mean, when you look at like the trajectory of where Christopher Young was at the time of this film, I mean, he had already done the two Hellraiser scores. He'd already done Nightmare on Elm Street two, which I actually think is one of the more underrated scores. Might might be my favorite out of. Um, maybe second to Charles Bernstein's score. But um, what I love about him yeah, is that pretty scary. he's he's got a real menace to uh, the elegance in his scores. Mm-hmm. Like he under, he's able to undercut a lot of the elegance with that, that menace, and especially with this one, just because we get the whole Jekyll and Hyde narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I really dig this one too. And I, and I was, I, I do think this is more underrated. Uh, Jen, what, what, what do you, what do you, uh, what do your take? What's your take on this one? I really liked this too. It kind of had like a sinister back to the future vibe that mm. I was really into. Um, kind of like with the little <laughs> like chimes at the top, you know. Um, but the thing I like, this was the one that I was the most fascinated by um, as I was re-listening to it. And I was trying to figure out what the mode is, but it's just like there's the augmented chords and there's like the kind of shifting back and forth between major and minor, which I think really like reflects the story that it's accompanying, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I, I uh, 
No, go, keep going. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, if I have one flaw, like, I, the book to me reads like an 80s action movie. So I, I was like, maybe a little less piano, maybe a little more like Running Man kind of elements. But it was just, it's, it like draws <laughs> you in, you know, it's really interesting, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting for me that I, I, I kind of really dig about it is that he's able to kind of, um, there's, a, there's a use of silence that I like mm-hmm. in this and that, that he kind of uses to greater effect, I would argue, in Nightmare 2. Um, the, one of the things I really love in Nightmare 2 is just the, the, the sparse piano that he has in that, which is actually, this is going to get really nerdy, but like something that Mark <laughs> Snow does in the early episodes of The X-Files. Um, <laughs> and uh, I want to say that might be the Fluke Man episode where they use it, where it's just like dun, 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 dun. And like as a kid, that scared the shit out of me. And in this one, it's not so much. It's a little more uh, mythical, a little more um, mystical. I mean, I, I think one of my problems with the dark half in general is just that I think the tone is a little all over the place, even in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, you know, he kind of wrestles with that a little bit. And I think he gets away with it just because, as I mentioned before, it's, you know, like you get the George Stark, Tad Beaumont, uh, Beaumont. I think it's Beaumont. Boogeyman? Beaumont? Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. anyway. <laughs> Bozeman. Bozeman. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so, I, so for me, it's it's I, I think it's it's definitely a strong effort for him. Um, Blake, what, what what are your thoughts on this score? I uh, I'm a big fan of this one. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Chris in general. He's in the first book, mm-hmm. so we talk about this uh, score a bit in the first book, and and since the first book, uh, you know, I'm also biased because since the first book, we've become pretty good friends. So I you know I had to make sure he was represented on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know that he's not particularly happy with it and that I don't think he feels like he ever got to finish it because there was such mm-hmm. a mess going mm-hmm. on with the making of that movie and post and whatnot. But uh, it's like it's quintessential Chris Young in terms of the orchestral stuff that he's known for. There's also a lot of shades of uh, like a Danny Elfman feel. But yes. I feel like yeah. I feel like mm-hmm. but I feel like I feel like Chris was like Danny Elfman before Danny Elfman was mm-hmm. Danny Elfman. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So I kind of yeah. originated that a bit. Yeah, I I, I did want to ask you because we I, I we just interviewed him last year for Pet Cemetery and mostly because through consequence we always get uh, everyone always is like hey you want to do the music and then I'll be like can we talk to the filmmaker too and they'll be like well you're a music publication and we're like well we're also TV and film but whatever um, <laughs> so I took the interview and and I, I was shocked at how forthcoming he is with just like he just started talking about his room that he composes in and he like, he like invited me to <laughs> go hang out with him in LA. And he was like, Oh, you love the spooky and the creepy and the Halloween stuff too. Cause I, I guess he, apparently he scores with like jack-o'-lanterns um, right next to him and everything. Um, and I, and I wondered if like, if you had, it, it seems like you guys got that, that's that, that personal touch. And I was just wondering if he's just that affable all the time. I, I thought maybe I caught him at a good time or something, but no, he's extremely open. His, uh, interview in the first score to death book is many people have told me it's their favorite interview because he's so open and it even yeah. gets a little bit raw in that like he he's a very insecure guy um mm-hmm. and so he i think he as he's gotten older he's questioned whether the paths he's taken in terms of even though he's a horror fan of doing so many horror movies was such a good idea and um but he's 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 marvelously quirky he's super open uh, not uh, about a year, you know, uh, not this past April, but, you know, in the before times, I went <laughs> and, and uh, 
was selling the copies of my book at uh, Monster Palooza in California. And he came one of the days to kind of sit and sign the book with me. And every time somebody would come up, you know, he would start talking to them. And I got to a like kind of running joke with this guy that was sitting there helping me because I said, how long do you think it's going to take before Chris is going to give his phone number out to this person? (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, like on cue, he'd be like, well, take my phone number, you know, text me. What do you think? (laughs) Or whatever. He's just uh, he's uh, amazingly open and generous and. He's just a he's just a, a great guy, and he's become like one of my favorite people since we did that interview. And also, that interview was done over like three uh, interviews. It was pretty long, and so we we did like three interviews for the book. So we got to know Amazing. each other pretty well during that. I love it. I love it. Well, I've that's that's all I got on on, on this one. Are, are we? Does anyone have any other thoughts that we want to talk about with the uh, dark half, or shall I move to number nine? Let's go for number nine. All right, number nine, <laughs> and not the number Beatles nine. song. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is actually one of the ones that just totally threw me uh, for a left hook. Uh, number nine, Firestarter by Tangerine Dream. I absolutely forgot that Tangerine Dream had actually done a Stephen King score. Um, I love Tangerine Dream. I, I, I'm a, just an obsessed fan just because I, I, you know, in addition to David Lynch or John Carpenter, I love, love Michael Mann. Um, and so their score for Thief is one of my favorite scores of all time. So I, God, revisiting this one, I, I immediately went back to my uh, ranking and messed with it. And I was like, all right, I got to, I got to punch this up higher. And now I'm actually having listened to it all day, even while writing about other scores. I was like, fuck, I should have gone a little higher. I, I, I love this one. Um, this is an interesting score for this film because the film itself <laughs> originally belonged to John Carpenter. Um, so mm. he was originally supposed to do this. And then you watch the movie and it looks like a John Carpenter movie. I mean, it literally looks almost totally. like the same cinematography as Dean Cundy. So in a sense, it makes it makes total uh, you know sense that they would get you know, a composer like Tangerine Dream that would, you know, they're the champs behind the the synths. And, um, you know, seeing that it was released in 84, you know, like right before Jan Hammer would go and popularize the instrumental synth song with Miami Vice the next year. I mean, it it (laughs) totally makes sense. But the thing I love about this is that it does my favorite thing with any 80s score um, or with any any score in general is that there's a singularity to it. And Mm -hmm. these songs, like... One song sounds like it could be a fucking Brian Ferry song. Um, and I, I want to say that we were joking when we were watching it at your apartment, Mac. I think like me and Justin were like singing like Brian Ferry lyrics over <laughs> like the parts of it when we were watching the movie. Um, yeah. I can't remember. But then there's another track that's like Charlie the Kid that literally sounds like a Phil Collins Genesis song. I, I don't know. I just I like the score far more than the actual movie. Um, Jen, what do you what are your thoughts on this one? Um, it's so dreamy and kind of like bizarre in like this really like interesting way. Um, I love Firestarter so much, um, the book and the movie and the story and just Charlie in general. So I think that kind of oh, wow. will bump this one up for me. Yeah, I mean, I know it's not perfect, but I got a lot of I got no, a lot go, of no, for no, Charlie. No. Go for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it's like there. It reminded me kind of of like Suspiria in a way, and not like that it sounded like that Goblin score, but just that it was like its own thing, and it's almost like 
it, I don't want to say it's a character in the movie, but it like has such a presence, you know, that's yeah. so distinctive that I really dug. Also, there's like a wobbly quality to it that I really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's kind of crazy because when you think about it, like this is, I mean, this wasn't an early effort for them, I and mean, they're they're the type of band that has like literally like I think like sixty fucking records to their name or something like that. <laughs> and so at the time, they had already, uh, God, I want to say say like even like. 20 albums to their name um, just because they were just knocking things out left and right. And mm. this year especially was huge for them. I mean, not only did they have uh, risky business, which gave them, you know, lover um, or I think it's love, lover, love on a real train or yeah. Love on a real train, which is just huge and has been used in like countless things, including like Mr. Robot. Um, but they also scored William Tannen's flashpoint starring Chris Christopherson, <laughs> treat Williams and rip torn. Um, and my favorite, Gene Smart, <laughs> treat. Uh, who I just Love did an appreciation from. Um, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, so huge year for them. Um, uh, Blake, are you familiar? What are your thoughts on the Firestar score? Uh, I'm a big fan of it. I mean, it's uh, it's probably one of my, it's up there one of my favorite scores that they've done. Not that they've done a ton, but, uh, you know, for me, film scores fall into like two categories. There's the ones that you know, work great in the context of the movie. Mm-hmm. And there's the ones that are very listenable outside of the yeah. movie. And then there's mm-hmm. the ones that are both, obviously. But this one is definitely one that I, you know, I I can listen to and do listen to, you know, just as music. Just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I kind of am drawn towards not just the synth stuff, but, um, you know, Goblin, the band, the fact that it's a band, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just kind of has a very different feel than uh, many other scores, in, including most of the scores, if not all of the scores on the list oh, that totally. we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, Mac, I know you're a dream head. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I love Thief, love Sorcerer. Uh, Oof, I mean, yeah. I think they've got they've they've got a, a corner of a, of the market. Um this was this was hard for me because this this didn't make my list, um, probably because I forgot they did it. I mean, yeah. when we watched the movie, the movie is just not. Sorry, Jen, but I I didn't love the movie. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I actually I like the book. Uh, I, I like the book more, but I think the the film for me is just kind of forgettable. And mm-hmm. I will say the score. We probably focused so much on the score while watching it because it did feel like. Not its own character, but I, I was trying to focus on the good things, and I feel like mm-hmm. the score was probably one of the only good things. I was like, ah, this, if this score wasn't in this movie, but uh, but I agree with Blake in terms of you know things that you can listen to outside of, uh, outside of watching these things and and uh, re- listening to it today on its own, just listening to the music, I I have an appreciation for it, but it's not not at the top of my tangerine my tea dream uh, <laughs> list as it were. Yeah. Would you would you consider the legend score? This is our second uh, episode. You no, know, honestly, in a week I, I, where we're talking you know, about I legend. bringing up legend as much as possible. I'm actually not a huge fan of that. You know, except for the, the unicorn dream song. You know, at uh-huh. the end, I, I'm not a huge fan of their their score. After I heard Jerry Goldsmith's score, I was I was kind of like, oh, they kind of ruined this for me now because I, it's hard for me to watch the theatrical cut. Uh, it, what I do now is just watch the director's cut and then hop over the theatrical cut for that last <laughs> song nice. but uh nice. yeah yeah well i will say there's a forgotten score that nobody and when i started selling the book at uh 
conventions to get people to come to the table so I could talk about the book. I sold soundtracks on vinyl to kind of be get people in the door. And so I bought like all these copies of, a, of their score for a f- film that I can't even find anymore called Wavelength. And nobody, I still have like five copies because nobody <laughs> ever bought any. <laughs> nice. That was like I just think I just think nobody knows it, so nobody. So and that was only totally like a, worth checking out. I think that was like two scores away from this one. I think they did that maybe a year beforehand. I, I, I remember seeing that today when I was I was like, "What is wavelength?" I had never heard of it before. Um, that's funny. That's funny. Well, well and, and I oh yeah, go for I, it. I gotta mention right. before we move on. Uh, they they did the the score, the soundtrack to Near Dark. <laughs> oh, which will be. Uh, discuss very soon on uh, a Halloweenies uh, Patreon episode. Actually, I just had to give your brother right. Near Dark on DVD because for some reason that movie's not streaming anywhere right now, which is insane to me. Can't I find c- it. Couldn't <laughs> believe it. Um, well, let's move on to number eight. I got no real fun uh, jokes for the the number eight, but uh, I will say, <laughs> was surprised to see this title in everyone's and uh, in, in I think the majority. I, th- I want to say everyone had this in their top ten except for me, but. Um, Jay Chataway's Silver Bullet. Um, I did not hey. know that this is a uh, Mac. Did you have <laughs> you had this in your top ten, right? I do, you know, because uh, now now maybe just I watched this a lot as a kid, and maybe because the protagonist is a kid, there was just certain things that stuck with me, mm-hmm. and the score from this film is definitely one of them. I feel like. Something we were mentioning with the Christopher Young score, even though I don't, I don't think it quite works for that film, but I think a lot of people approach these horror films, these Stephen King horror films, because it's not just straight horror. Usually there is a really good drama, a dramatic mm-hmm. element mm-hmm. to it. And I think that they, they kind of treat them as these like dark fairy tales. So I think the scores mm-hmm. kind of start reflecting that a little bit. And Silver Bullet is, is perfect. I think uh, just, just listening to that opening theme... Or, uh, but but really the thing that sticks with me is that uh, that sequence at the end with with uh, with Uncle Red and mm-hmm. and when when he finally starts to kind of believe that the werewolf's real and that mm-hmm. music that synth that low synth just like pounding and and I did that just like that just stuck with me so I, I think what I went to with this score list was what do I remember what do I genuinely remember. You know, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I could have looked up any of these like Firestarter and, and then been like, oh, yeah, this is great, which, you know, I kind of did. But uh, <laughs> it wasn't but it didn't make my list initially, you know. But, yeah, Silver Bullet, uh, you know, just going through this and it, it does kind of have this it's time stamped as hell in that like 1980s, almost like when the, when like the, the flighty feathery music comes in at the beginning, like mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, like uh, uh <laughs> The Boy Who Could Fly theme or something yes. like that, which I just watched <laughs> on HBO the other day. Uh, it like does a, have like that, like, like, like oh, it's Amblin. 1980s family film. You yeah, know? yeah. Exactly. exactly. But then, but there's that, that menacing thing that they just kind of keep mm-hmm. dropping in there, that, that, that the, um, the wolf theme. It's just, I, I, it's, you know, I just, uh, it's a personal favorite. I, what what <laughs> surprised me about this theme was when I dug into Chadway's history, you know, there's a, there's a lot of big band Americana uh, sounds to the score, which makes sense because his history has him. He worked in the Navy band. He was in the military. Um, mm. And oh. so he's a musician for the, the military. And um, I mean, granted, 
<laughs> he did a real 180 by working with William Lustig, but um, and then eventually with like Star Trek. But like <laughs> you can tell that 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 big band or um, uh, that 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 sort of big American band sound is in this just for the very like Fourth of July sort of mm-hmm. atmosphere that this movie goes for. Um, Blake, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, uh, Silver Bullet, the film, is, we're talking about top ten lists, is easily on my top ten favorite movies of all time. So I have a very special spot (laughs) (laughs) in my heart reserved for Silver Bullet. Uh, And uh, Jay... Chataway as well, who's also featured in the first Score to Death book, Plug, in case anybody wants to listen to Jay mm-hmm. talk about his history and talk about making the music for Silver Bullet and Maniac. Uh, Jay has a really great way of making horror movies, or, or their scores rather, like kind of sentimental. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it's what... Uh, Mackenzie was talking about and and those are my favorite King films are the ones that like on the surface are really just these like family melodramas or whatever and then there's the horror underneath and it's one of the reasons why I love this film so much it's why I think Cujo uh, is Mm -hmm. uh, great as a film but also Bernstein's score for that and but Jay has a way even Maniac is like that you know Mm -hmm. Maniac his his music is what gives that film a ton of uh subtext and 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 the the character you know you kind of feel for him because of what jay's music or tell is telling us about him and i think he captures the idea of that at its essence silver bullet is about this handicapped kid's relationship with his sister Mm -hmm. and his fun drunk un- drunk uncle <laughs> and like it's really like this love triangle in a way or like just like mm-hmm. this this family unit and um the music you know one of my favorite things in the film is when the voiceover even though it's kind of out of place but i just love when she's like going around and she's looking for the uh you know for who's missing an eye and they mm-hmm. go to the guy Mm-hmm. To make the silver bullet, oh. and he, she's, they're like, and he was an old Uncle Red said he was an old world craftsman, and uh, Jay's music for all that is great. And then specifically, Jay and I talked about there's the scene just before uh, Corey Haim character gets chased in the car, uh, and he's just like at the park watching these kids who can run playing baseball, and it's just mm-hmm. kind of like heart breaking mm-hmm. <laughs> this mm-hmm. kid is in a wheelchair <laughs> and is like you got nothing to do but like watch other kids have fun and jay's music on that scene so i love this score uh interesting trivia stuff is that jay went to a like a wolf sanctuary and recorded the wolves <laughs> and like interesting and sampled oh. them and worked them into the background of the music oh. and stuff so i love i love the, the score and I, and I love the movie it's a it's a blast it's a blast and yeah. one of the i think we the, when we covered it, unfortunately we weren't in the summer when we covered it on the podcast it was like dead winter so like i related to like i guess the first two chapters where for the most part the, the action of the book um for cycle the werewolf 
takes place a lot of the summer and the silver bullet itself is like really a summer movie it feels like but um mm-hmm. jen w- w- what are your thoughts on the bullet <laughs> I love this movie. I remember it being on the. <laughs> I remember it being on USA all the time when yes. I was little. So I just watched it a lot. Um, and I hadn't revisited it in a long time. But the score really reminds me a lot of John Williams, and he is one of my favorite composers. Um, like there's like the the sweet kind of ET vibe. Like there's yep. very like childhood. But then like Mac, you were saying like there's that menace to it, you know. Um, and I wrote like menacing, intense. And then like during the chase number, it almost like kind of veers into indiana jones territory Mm -hmm. and i just like it really kind of rings your emotions out and i think that's what the kinds of scores that i really love are the ones that can like amplify the emotions of the movie um and i i just really love this i also tend to like the orchestral ones a little better um but this one it just it really it got to me (laughs) i was like oh this is so sweet it's like horror childhood oh it is yeah Yeah, i mean totally (laughs) that's that is chadaway's voice in the titular theme right when he's singing isn't that him because uh, there's I, I was listening today and it sounds like it, it there was like a song with like actual lyrics and that seems yeah i don't think i don't think that's jay okay let's <laughs> just say it let's just say it is though yeah <laughs> it's the wolf it's jay in wolf form <laughs> i mean if, if i could still go to my gym i'd definitely play that while i'm running it's it's a total well, 80s well, i just got to say last time i saw jay he had an eye patch on okay oh okay oh no <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, any other thoughts on a silver bullet? Go right. watch it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a fun. Great. It's a fun watch. Underrated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I guess this is underrated. I thought this score was going to be so much higher, and <laughs> depending on the day, this could be my number one, both adaptation and score. Number seven, lucky number seven, and I'm going to lean on that lucky because this is I'm a little shocked at where it's at. Michael Kamen's The Dead Zone score. Now, I adore this score to death I, I i think it's chilling i think it's tragic i think it's vicious um i think Cayman gets right to the core of cronenberg's film and also king's work um <laughs> dead zone is one of my fa- is, dead zone has become probably my favorite stephen king book even over pet cemetery and 1122 now i, I love wow. it so much i think it's Mike, perfect I, can't it. take. <laughs> um, I think this is this score is just so icy so stirring i love that opening um, I love mm-hmm. how it ascends and it descends. I love how it has this adventurous streak that kind of reminds me of, this is going to sound really obscure, but I don't remember, I don't know if you all remember like the adventurous movies that would come out in the eighties and they'd always have this sort of like stock score for these adventure movies, like especially ones put out by Disney. Um, mm-hmm. And it just reminds me of that. But then all of a sudden it pivots right into this like sense of desperation, almost like, I think of like the scene in Last Crusade when Elsa's like losing grip from Indy. It's like kind of reminds <laughs> me of like that sort of like someone falling off the cliff and you're just watching them fall off, almost like actually what Cayman would later uh, score for Die Hard with uh, Hans Gruber. Spoiler alert! But um, love this score to death. I know Mac, you love this score, so I'm going to go right to you because we've talked I, about this at lengths. Um, I do, and and with you, Dead Zone's my favorite book, and uh, oh, my favorite King book, and you know I, I you know for me i saw all of these films before i read these books mm-hmm. so for me these a lot of these scores are tied and I, I think music makes a movie so for me a lot of these scores were kind of like my gateway into king you know if, if i liked it enough and then i was really into the film and then if i was really into the film i was interested in the, the source material and et cetera et cetera 
this is funny because I'm I'm a big Cronenberg fan, and I you would have I would not have guessed this was Cayman because it sounds so much like Howard Shore at least the main theme yeah, and it's like I don't know what Howard Shore was doing then, <laughs> but because I feel like he's he's scored almost all of Cronenberg's films for a, a good a good slew of them, uh, but. I do love this score. I, I just remember watching the opening uh, or watching the film here. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you were there. Were you here, Mike? We were there, yeah. Because we kept and, talking um, about that one jogger who looks like Oh, that's, yes, slick. yes. Yeah. And, and that's, just, that's just one of my favorite openings to a, a King film. And uh, I hear that score. It's just, it's so tragic. I, it just, it cuts right, right to me. I, I mean, it, it, I think it's a solid, solid theme. Um but but that's the only reason why it wasn't higher on my list is I, I I'm hard pressed to like think of other music from the movie other yeah. than the theme. It definitely does. However, keep it that opening for sure. Yeah, but I, not to say that the rest of the music's not good. I just you know I it's it's hard for me to recall. But I do think that uh, it's a solid solid theme. I mean they even <laughs> I think they recently used some of that music in uh, Homecoming on 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 Amazon Prime. Really? <laughs> if, if you, yeah, they use that theme. Uh, they they reuse a lot of music from other things. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I don't know if that was like an experiment or something, but um, but but yeah, Homecoming. Uh, it's definitely used in an episode there, and I and I keyed in on it immediately. <laughs> I knew exactly what yeah. it was. I was like, <laughs> yes, I love this, love it. Uh, love it. But yeah, big big fan of the of Dead Zone and big fan of the, the the theme of this movie. Jen, what are your thoughts on this one? Are you a Dead Zone fan, or uh, was that? Uh, one of your- I'm probably the reason this is not higher on the list because <laughs> it should not make my top 10. I am so sorry. I don't love The Dead Zone. Um, I think it's a great, like, constructed book, and I agree with everything you're saying. It just doesn't quite work for me. Um, but I did like the score, and I think it adds, like, the – like. Uh, it's so funny to hear you guys talk about like connecting to that book because I just have not ever connected to it. You know, like the emotion, I don't know, maybe I'm dead inside or something, but just, it doesn't quite (laughs) grab me. But, um, the, but the music did, I feel like the music gave that emotional weight that I think I was kind of missing in the book, but it's also just not one of my favorite movies. So, um, it's, I, I feel bad saying that it's just not really my jam. No, you know, what's (laughs) funny is so my girlfriend, Sammy Kaganal runs our social media, uh, she she is so literal when it comes to adaptations that like if it's something changes she gets really like upset and we've had arguments about mm. this and we've almost broke up <laughs> no I'm just joking but um <laughs> I <laughs> but I'll I'll be like it's okay you know they they take the source material and they they do their own thing um mm. and on a side note um how do you like The Shining but uh, I <laughs> um so but like the thing is that she she watched that literally like I think like this the second that she finished the book. Because I was rabid to watch it. It was like right in the middle of the, mm. the winter. I was like, this is the best movie to watch during the winter. Um, so I queued it up like literally right after she finished it. And I think that was a bad idea because she was just like, well, you're missing this point. This whole section of the book is so important. And like, you know, this thing doesn't have a Sarah. And I was just like, you know what? It's, it's, not, in the, it's not in the movie, but it's still a good movie. And then so, but I think she did have a problem <laughs> with it because there weren't like parts of the, there were like really crucial parts. Like she was really upset that the, the whole lightning thing wasn't in it. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, actually, I think that that's fine if you kind of. I think Cronenberg made the right choice in not having it in there. But um, mm-hmm. was it the ad- was it just that you weren't feeling the book, or is it um, is it just the adaptation itself was missing elements to it? Um, well, in case everyone didn't hate me before, I just <laughs> am not really a big Cronenberg fan either. You know, there's like a garish like brightness to the like the the film that just kind of 
I don't dig. Um, and I just, I think I wanted more from the book. You know, mm. I, I want a stronger female presence in it. But, um, and maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it is. That's kind of the missing piece for me. Because I do think it's good. And I've heard you guys talk about it a lot. And I agree, like logically, I agree with everything you're saying. Um, I just, it's like, there's something about it that doesn't connect with me, you know? That's, that's fair. That's, hey, that's totally fair. That's totally yeah, fair. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, whatever, but <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, <laughs> no, I, 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 everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And, and I, that's interesting. I, I, I want to sit down and talk to you about Cronenberg yeah. and why you don't like it, but we should do a whole episode. Hey, um, maybe I need to revisit <laughs> Yeah, stuff. I know. Yeah. Um, uh, but Blake. no, no, I, uh, <laughs> You got to say, pull us out of the pull us out of the ice, Blake. What are your thoughts on uh, Dead Zone? The ice, it's gonna break. <laughs> it's gonna break. Uh, God. Two mice. The, uh, <laughs> well, I am both a huge Cronenberg fan and a big Michael Kamen fan, so uh, I'm a big Phew. fan of this one. I agree with Mac in that it it does at times feel very much like Howard Shore, mm. but it also does. You know, I think what I like about the Jay Chataway score for Silver Bullet is that it really kind of punctuates some of the more dramatic or emotional parts of that story, like the tragedy mm-hmm. of this guy and the relationship. And uh, and it's kind of it's big and kind of lush at points. Uh, I, I, I'm a, I love it. I mean, I think it's kind of an underrated movie f- in the Cronenberg catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, also, I because agree. I don't think he really champions it much because he thinks of it as like that's one of the few movies he did, like kind of strictly as a paycheck, I think. But um, <laughs> it's crazy. Me. But I, I, you know, I dig it. I'm, yeah. I'm into it. Well, do y'all want to go see a dead body? Because <laughs> <laughs> number six is Jack Nietzsche's I kind of quote unquote score for Stand By Me. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to run the gamut on this one just one more time because um, I, honestly, one of my big reasons why I want to do this this entire episode is because I worship the 13 minutes, not even 13 minutes, I think it's like 12 minutes and 52 seconds of score that Jack Nietzsche did for Rob Reiner's Stand By Me. Um, and why I say quote unquote score, not just for the, the, the length of it, but also because it's, a lot of it is just taking the the parts of benny king's uh legendary song and kind of mm-hmm. creating its own sort of um uh musical tapestries with it i gotta say there are only a few compositions here but god do all of them hit like a pile of bricks to me i, I it doesn't matter where i am it doesn't matter what's going on it doesn't matter how i feel like this score the 12 minutes even 10 seconds of it will stop me in place it's like my desperado to borrow from <laughs> Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, I will just be like, Sammy, will you please? Oh, like, I'll just be sitting there just like <laughs> thinking in, in a daze. And, and I know that, and it, like I mentioned, it, it is just like the reprisal of like Benny, K- Benny uh, King's uh, song, but there's this like coming of age glow to his, uh, to, to both the, the actual breakdown of the song and then also his own compositions that I thought about it today and I think it really informed um, how I, uh, my sense of nostalgia 
this was a huge movie for me growing up. It was on, I think it was on the same tape that I had Ghostbusters on, which also had Dirty Dancing on it. Mm. Um, so really interesting, eclectic mix there. But um, <laughs> I, I really resonated with this because I, you know, as a kid, you watch this, you connect so much with like the adventurous aspect of it and you don't really understand the idea of the looking back and the nostalgia, the idea of what nostalgia is. And like the only thing I could get was that, all right, well, it was a bunch of kids playing outside and I still was from an era where, you know, it was pre-internet. So the stuff that they did, the, the, the fact that like their parents, you know, they were wandering around outside in the wilderness and outside in the town. That was my life largely because most of my parents, my, my parents and my friend's parents would never let us inside the house. They're like, all right, well, it's 98 degrees outside. Go fucking hang out and play, whatever. <laughs> so we'd either be on boats, we'd be on anything else. And um, so for me, thinking about it today, while well, listening to this again and just bawling I, I it doesn't matter I, I cry every time I listen to this um it it made me wonder like I think this really did inform how I I look back at things now and what I f- how I define nostalgia and um and in turn I think that's why the film continues to hit harder and harder for me I mean great the performances are great River Phoenix should have gotten nominated for a Academy Award for this and Will Wheaton is amazing in it I love the direction of this I love the shine the sheen that Rob Reiner gets. I still think this is the best Stephen King adaptation. But man, like every every section, every section, like the piano sequence that plays when um, that whenever um, Gordy has uh, flashbacks to his brother. Um, mm. The I don't know what it is. I think it's a theremin, um, but it's like the dun, 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 dun. it just kills me. And then the piano hits. I, I don't know. It's it's one that goes fronder with age just like the film i it, it it's so crazy that it's only 13 minutes it, it's i just had to stress that but um mm. blake i i i haven't pivoted to you first so i, w- I want to go to you what do, what are your thoughts on this and do would you consider this a score even though it's only 13 minutes and most of it is kind of fragments of benny king uh sure i mean it's underscoring the film i mean it's you know there's other s- soundtracks that uh you know, are linked to King films. Some of them on this list, some of them aren't that are, you know, uh, even less so what one would think of as a score, like Maximum Overdrive. (laughs) 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 But it, but it is still score in in its way. And I, I wish I had the kind of connection with this that you're having. I'm jealous listening (laughs) to you talk to it. I don't know if I have that connection with anything let alone <laughs> 13 minutes of music in a movie. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I look, this movie, I think, was big for our generation. I mean, I remember going to see it with my dad in the movies. I remember that I ate milk duds while we watched it. Right. That's <laughs> uh, my candy of choice. Good, good movie candy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think you're right. It's the kind of movie that, you know, we connect with it in a very different way when we're that age the age of the kids in that movie basically and then how we connect with it today i think it's influence on pop culture and things like the wonder years and Mm -hmm. the goldbergs and (laughs) you know all these things that are like this nostalgic narrated uh look at at one's childhood i think all kind of you know had such a big impact on that and the fact that you know, one can take a popular song and, you know, weave something completely new and meaningful is uh, it's the beauty of music. You know, yeah. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Jen. I love this one. Um, and it's that type of soundtrack where it takes like the song from the movie and just makes like an orchestral version of it, you know, or an mm -hmm. instrumental version. And like the one that jumps out is kind of like that is Ghost um, because oh, it yeah. takes that unchanged melody and like makes the score. Um, but that like that song, Benny King's song, I, I love that song. It's probably one of my favorites. And we actually put it on my wedding CD um, because it's just like it's so simple, mm -hmm. but so like heartfelt. And I think it like it's the perfect marriage of song and story here you know um and i kind of love that he didn't try to make some totally different um score that he just took what really worked and just kind of amplified it or made it like set the the different scenes and i was listening to it and it was, it was it's really creative how he did that too like taking those elements and like you would have the bass line yep. in one place with like some chords over it and then just i thought it was really clever how he took that because it's a very simple song and it's pretty short, too, and just expanded that because, I mean, it's 13 minutes based on, like, what, a two-and-a-half-minute song. And it doesn't feel, like, repetitive or, like, okay, this this theme again. You know, it feels, like, unique and creative, you know, and, or you don't notice because you're crying. You yeah, know? I think that's a big part of it. And what what's mm -hmm. actually something that, that I was looking at um, in terms of research uh, on it, I mean, he, I mean, he, he died in 2000, uh, unfortunately, but... Um, uh, big life. I mean, he, he worked with the Rolling Stones, worked with Neil Young, um, but he really worked with, I mean, he was the right-hand man for Phil Spector, um, mm. you know, that wonderful guy. Um, but, uh, he, <laughs> um, but he helped orchestrate the wall of sound. And I think that plays into great effect in this. I think you can mm. see how he, exactly what you just discussed, Jen, is that he was able to take parts and create broader um, atmospheres for it. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of love the fact that for only 13 minutes, the repetition, I think, is really key um, in this film because it becomes signifiers for emotions and themes and portraits. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, it's filled in the blanks with such a classic rock score. I mean, I put that, that vinyl on all the time. I do wish that the 13 minutes were on that vinyl. I don't know why they decided to not put that on yeah, there. but um, <laughs> it's It's really weird that they didn't do that. But I, I actually find myself when... Um, when we were leaving and closing out of our office, which is where uh, the Losers Club uh, originally recorded last year, um, the <laughs> I remember sitting there uh, alone in the office. And if you go on YouTube and you search, because it's only 13 minutes, someone who clearly had an emotional connection to it like I did, did a, a loop for like an hour. And <laughs> wow. I just put it on in the speaker in the office and I just started cleaning. And I didn't even realize that like, it had been going on for like 45 minutes before I was like, all right, that's enough. And it just, it just kept going like, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And then it go, I just, dun, dun, dun. Like, I'm sure the next door neighbor was just like, what the fuck do you like? Really I just want to be, I want to go back in time and be a fly on the wall at the 45 minute <laughs> marker where Mike looked up and just said, okay. <laughs> Got to turn this off. Yeah, it was because at, at some point you become like, even when you're alone, you, you just become too self-aware. You're like, somebody's got to mm. be watching me right now. And it's got to be really just embarrassing. Um, Mac, <laughs> you are the Gordy uh, of this group. Um, what are your thoughts on this one? It's all right. No, no, it's a great 13 minutes. No, it was hard. It, it, it didn't make my list, but it's only because I... 
I think it is a great theme and 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 though it does score key moments of the movie, you know, it 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 just didn't uh do it for me. I feel I feel like you have a connection with this film that I totally understand and I get. You know, I I there's there's movies that where there's movies that do that for me. This this isn't one of them. I I do love the movie and I think whenever I think of this movie, I think more of like you know the the American Graffiti soundtrack that's that's yeah. you know throughout, and I and I really love those songs and it really I think that's the first time I watched something of that era listening to listening to that kind of music and 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 keying into the the people that were listening to to these things and feeling like oh okay it it didn't feel like antiquated it didn't feel like strange to hear these songs. Uh, I don't know. I was lo- I looked at those songs a different way, and that's kind of how it. You know, that's I'm, I also want to talk about American Graffiti, but that's a whole different, <laughs> whole different. Oh thing. my god, I love that uh, movie. Ultimately, I uh, yeah, I, I I do I do love that the variation. Um, I, I understand why it made people's lists. It just didn't it just didn't make mine. But I I do love uh, the song Stand by Me, and uh, it's just I just I keep looking at this the cover of the soundtrack, and I keep thinking God. It, what if they had just called this the body? <laughs> like, would it have been? Mm-hmm. Would it have been what it is? And I, and it's such Mm-mm. a silly thing to say, but I just—it's so iconic to me now. Just that—that that cover of the four of them walking, you know, with the lake in the back, and I, <laughs> that's just funny to me. But it's—it's. It's, I've thought about that. Like, I don't think. I think it would have like the same sort of. I think there'd be more of an edge. You know, and mm-hmm. I think it would have it would be filed under the more like fringe coming of age stories of the eighties, maybe. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I don't think that the movie would be the would be different, but I just think the marketing. It's something when you see the body, it's almost like the cure, like in the nineties when that movie came out, and like there's something really tragic about the title that's tied to the tragedies in that movie. That the minute you think about that title, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, oh. It's about uh, a kid with AIDS, like or an undisclosed disease. I don't think they ever name that it's AIDS, but it's it's AIDS. So I think that when you hear the body, you're like, oh, Ray Brower. But when you hear Stand by Me, mm. I think of the Friends. Yeah, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget that that's part of the story. Lots of times. Oh, totally. Know? Yeah. I mean, honestly, growing up, it's the thing that really <laughs> st- the, the thing that stuck with me more was actually like the lard ass thing because. Yeah. <laughs> I was as a kid. I was just you know not only was a heavy kid, but I was just like. I, I it really bo- it really scared me that like the town didn't care for this kid and like I that was all I could think about like it wasn't even it was like that and maybe mm. Corey Feldman because I was obsessed with him growing up but um, <laughs> anyway speaking of kids speaking of friends and speaking of us being outside of town um, we have uh, some losers to contend with not ourselves <laughs> number five it chapter one by Benjamin Walfish. Um, Jen, you go with this one. Uh, you, you're you're a fan of it. Cha- uh, you're a fan of it, the book, and I, I don't know if yeah. we've ever talked about the 2017 movie. But what are you? What are yeah, your I don't think we have. Oh, we, uh, we've yeah, I had this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have. We've dedicated many episodes <laughs> to this movie. <laughs> That's true. Um, I uh, I had this one really high. I love this. Um, I really liked the movie. I I have some big issues with it, but I think I love the feel of the movie. And this, like, I kind of had a hard time cracking into what my favorite scores were going to be. And so, I'd, like, Mac, what I was doing is I was trying to remember what feelings I was feeling when I was watching some of the adaptations. And I just rem- remember, mm. like, 
connecting to the feeling of friendship here. And I remembered the mm-hmm. part where they were in the lake. Yes. And I didn't necessarily remember the music that was playing, but I just remembered that feeling. And like kind of what we were talking about with Stand By Me, I often forget that there is a clown in it because I just, the, the friendship is what I like really go to that story for. Um, yeah. And I was listening to it and it's it's like I think it's a really great orchestral score that I really love. I think it's um, kind of more modern. Um, and I have this war- this theory that I'm not 100 percent sure I could back up. But like I feel like when found footage became a thing, a lot of horror scores started to become really like minimal, you know, mm-hmm. and like dropped out a lot of those like themes that you could kind of hum in your head kind of went away. And I think this kind of has a, an interesting mix because I don't think I could like hum this, but it just has this like quality to it. Like it's, it feels more present than a lot of the horror movies that I can remember it, off it the totally top of my does. head. Yeah, yeah, no, it totally does. I mean, that, that's something that I brought up to, uh, I think Christopher Young and I had talked about that last year was, um, you know, because he's been responsible for so many other, like I kind of like the Hellraiser theme, for example. And I was talking mm-hmm. about like, why don't we see more pronounced themes anymore? And I, th- I think yeah. Blake, Blake, we talked about that last year, I think on relevant content um, where we, I think we talked about horror scores and how we don't have the signature themes as much anymore. It does feel a little more bedded. Um, and I think this does kind of find a good medium, like you're saying, Jen, because mm-hmm. I do think about the piano theme, which is something that does recur later on in um, chapter two, which I'll get into in a second. But um, <laughs> B- Blake, do you did you get the sense from that in this in this score that it kind of is like a medium between those two worlds, like the the more s- subdued score and then the more um, signature theme? Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe one of the reasons why, you know, it's not on my list. It's because it's like it's not, it's not, you know, talking about what I was talking about when we talked about Tangerine Dream was, this is not a score that I would, you know, put on and listen to. But I think Mm -hmm. it works really well in the context of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's it's interesting to look at film scores in general and throughout history and see the kind of the trends and Mm -hmm. we are definitely in a spot now where just themes are not as prominent um Mm -hmm. in terms of like melodic memorable themes i think some of that has to do with one we're not the same age as we were when we Mm. when we heard a lot of the themes that we love and i think like Mm -hmm. That we connect with it, we connected with a lot of the earlier themes in a way that we just probably won't connect with themes now as adults. Uh, oddly enough, uh, and also there's this huge argument by uh, composers, especially of guys like Chris of Chris's generation, and I don't believe Chris really had this argument, but guys like Jay Chadway talked about this with me, Harry Manfredini. Uh, Richard Band, this idea of uh, composers being saddled with temp scores, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. which wasn't as big of a deal before one could digitally edit. When they were editing on flatbeds, it wasn't as big of a deal. People didn't really use temp scores as much. And what seems to be the consensus is that, you know, as editors and directors are temp scoring with the same music you know most of these scores are becoming almost generic because they're all it's all composers trying to give their own twist 
on the same music <laughs> that every other <laughs> movie is being tempted <laughs> with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partially also why um, we don't get as big memorable themes anymore because this, I, at least that's is what a lot of the composers tell me, which is that like, they're really just trying to make somebody happy mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. somebody that's already kind of married to whatever score they've already put in their movie that belongs to somebody else and they mm-hmm. can't do that. Um, but with that said, uh, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful score. I mean, uh, the production of it is fantastic. Uh, like I said, I think it works really great in the context of the movie, but it's not necessarily one that I walk away with, uh, remembering or, mm-hmm. you know, having a, having a need to pu- put it on while I'm working or just listening to music. Yeah. Mac. What are your thoughts? I know you, you're a little torn on uh, the It chapters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just want to thank Benjamin Wallfish for his contributions on um, on Blade Runner 2049. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I do really like that score a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. I don't know what he did on it or, what, or how much of a hand he had in it. You know, I look at the rest of his 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 uh, his filmography here in terms of things that he composed, and and I I I, I don't remember any of this music. I also don't, I, I actually don't mind it. Chapter one. I think it's obviously the better of the two. I, you know, I'm not racing to rewatch anytime soon, but I, I gen generally enjoyed it when I watched it. You could, I couldn't tell you if you could put any of these songs on and say, I'd give you a million dollars. <laughs> if you tell me what movie this is from, <laughs> and I probably would not have guessed because uh. it just, it just, it didn't stick with me. And now here's the thing though. Like, what, what Blake was saying, when, when when I watched the It miniseries as a kid, I think Richard Bell's score for that really, it was one and the same. You know, I, I can't think of that miniseries without thinking of that music. Mm-hmm. And it was it is so intrinsically tied to my love for that miniseries. And, and that was kind of my doorway into Stephen King. It was probably one mm-hmm. of the first, first things I really got to watch as a child. <laughs> I can't believe my parents let me watch that. <laughs> and uh, where I was really, you know, and, and I, I really got invested. And, and I really absolutely connected with the children more so than the adults, even now as an adult. But, uh, <laughs> but that's just, you know, that's, that's just the nature of that book. However, uh, I think that's also why for me going into this movie, and I love music so much, I was really like, okay, all right, Wallfish, let's, you know, You've got to you've got to blow this other score out of my head. You know what I mean? Like this, you've mm. got to have some really memorable things. And for me, it just didn't it just didn't do that. Mm. Um, I don't think that it's a poor a poorly done score. But what I fear is um, is is we have like another like Michael Giacchino on our hands, where like mm-hmm. you know it's going to be a lot of scores that oh this sounds like Alan Silvestri, this sounds like Jerry mm. Goldsmith, mm-hmm. this you know like this sounds and. And I hope that's not the case. You know, I think I th- it's fine to have people that you're leaning on or, or inspiration or, you know, oh, I love this composer as a kid, so I want to kind of invoke that. But you've got to find your own way. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I, I just kind of felt like it, it just kind of sounds samey to me. Um, but that's that's just hey, me, and that's why that's why I know you went to me last on this I one. did. <laughs> well, because I got to bring this home and, and give a reason for why it's number five. So I, I think... 
I agree with pretty much everyone here. I, I, my thing with this is that I'm just hear me out. I think that Wallfish's score, um, <laughs> at least the specifically the the compositions connected to the Losers Club, um, are going to outlast the film, um, or reason, or they're probably re- the one of the reasons why the film resonated so much. I think, mm-hmm. like the piano and the strings in the song Blood Oath, uh, mm-hmm. which is the final yep. scene. Um, I think it's worth the whole score. I think everything before mm-hmm. that is pretty, mm. it, it works in service to the movie. Um, like Blake was saying, I think the piano is fine. I think the children singing, even though it kind of harkens back a little bit too much to the Amityville horror. Um, I think it still works, but what really ultimately sold me and propped the film up to a height that I just didn't expect when I saw it in 2017 is Wallfish's composition in that final scene. And when that scene hits, and maybe it's because I'm a little biased just because I think the loser's name, especially at the time, meant so much to me and we poured so much emotion into this like podcast and like all our friends were together and Caffrey had just left. I don't know. It was just like, it felt like such a manifestation of that. And, and yeah. I think the end of that circle, when the, the flute comes in right over the, the piano it's just perfection like that to me is it's like the it's like the Nietzsche score it's like this is this is the feeling that I need to that needs to be conveyed in this moment and they had already sold me on the chemistry with the kids but to bring it to that sort of level of coming of age heights and that innocence and um that emotional punch just it really hit me um Mm -hmm. and I credit to that and I think that when you look at chapter two to bring that in that movie is just all over the place. And even though I still, I still, I still appreciate chapter two. I still like chapter two in parts, but I think the score in that sense, especially with regards to the adults connections, the score has to do so much of the heavy lifting to remind you of the feeling that you had in the first one. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's kind of where I, I give a lot of props to this, but overall, like, yeah, I think I don't necessarily think about it a lot. Um, I put it on occasionally when I'm writing stuff that's involving Stephen King, just because I happen to always have to tie in something with, it, with whatever I'm writing about musically. But <laughs> um, yeah, beyond that, um, not much. But I will tell you, there is a score, and we're going to be talking about it right now, that I can listen to on its own, and I can listen to in the, the, the film. Um, and I can listen to it in the car, especially if that car happens to be Christine. Um, <laughs> and by the master of horror himself, uh, John Carpenter, uh, I'm going to be pre- brief on my end on this. Uh, I, I think there's a sense of sadness to this score. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Carpenter synths have ever sounded this lonely uh, or this angry. And I and I wondered, and I wanted to kind of toss this out and, and see if anyone thinks this is just getting a little too uh, tinfoil hat. I wondered if this had to do with where Carpenter was at in his life. Because if you recall, the thing which we've talked about on this podcast and the crate episode somehow <laughs> was, uh, was just a flop. He lost his contract. He lost Firestarter, which we've mentioned it's before. Crazy. And Christine was seen almost as like a comeback of sorts for him. Um, and I wonder if that sort of loneliness and that sadness that I mentioned has to do with just in that, that fury also um, maybe has to do with that. I, I don't know if I'm thinking way too much into it. Mac, you're, you're a carpenter uh, yourself. Um, what do you think? Um, do you think I I'm am? Related? I'm related to the carpenter. No, you uh, are related. To it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a big carpenter head, and, and the, let's give credit to Alan Haworth as you know, mm-hmm. as we will. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think 
You know, this uh, Arnie's love theme, man, uh, that that is something that you hear and it doesn't I don't think it leaves your head uh, that the reprise of that. Uh, I think Christine attacks there. There are moments that really uh, embedded themselves in my brain. And, and I, I didn't love this movie uh, growing up. I think even watching it after after having read the book and then watching it, I had a I had a newfound respect for what what they were able to do and i feel that that score is is instrumental pun intended i mm-hmm. i think that mm-hmm. it, it, it <laughs> like like in terms of marrying that the two ideas together i i think carpenter did a great job scoring this um i don't think the movie would be half as good without that score i agree and mm-hmm. i think that and that that to me is like that's that's definitely a stamp of a great score when you're like mm-hmm. well if you take the score away this movie ain't ain't much, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, Christine uh, is 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 up there for me. Uh, the the scents are great, and um, I mean, you wouldn't have the Stranger Things. Yeah, the, 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 like, I mean, oh, it, yeah, literally, yeah, it literally not. sounds exactly like it. Uh, but I, I I feel like there are. I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think if John Carpenter didn't exist, I don't think you'd have any of this stuff today. You know, no. Um, mm-hmm. But I but I feel that this score in particular and i don't know to speak to what you were saying mike about where carpenter was at during this but it it punctuates that loneliness and that sadness so well um like i just remember going back and when we filmed our little video Mm -hmm. for the losers club for the christine episode i haven't had that much fun yeah yeah And, and i haven't had that much fun though in a long time and 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 putting arnie's love theme to it Although I don't think you can find it out there anymore, folks. Uh, <laughs> putting that theme to it, though, um, really just it put me in a mood. Mm-hmm. You know, it just really <laughs> put me in a mood. Uh, and uh, yeah, I can't I can't say enough good things about it. But um, yeah, well, Blake, I think did you have this as your number one? Uh yeah maybe I didn't really know that the <laughs> list was in order when I made. Oh okay okay sorry. I just made, <laughs> I just, <laughs> listed them as I thought of them. Uh, but yeah, this is probably, it's one of my favorite Carpenter scores. Carpenter is my favorite director. Yeah. He is probably the most uh, to blame for me writing <laughs> books about <laughs> horror movie music. Mm-hmm. When I fell in love with his music in the 90s, it was exactly the thing that put me on the trajectory that like 20 years later I would, you know, devote years to, you know, listening to horror film music and interviewing these guys. Uh, he's featured in the first book. We talk a little bit about this score. Uh, so, and it's also a movie that I like a lot. Um, I think it's kind of, I think of the Carpenter catalog, this is one that is still, maybe a bit underrated like everything's kind of had a resurgence when i was in college like nobody gave a crap about the fog but now everybody loves the fog i know you know, <laughs> you know they live is kind of the same way uh this is the one that still doesn't get mentioned a lot and i could see why i mean look there's certainly things that don't work about it i mean the fact mm-hmm. that the bully's clearly like 40 years old <laughs> and still in high school is is iffy mm. uh but I think, you know, Keith Gordon's performance is great. And mm-hmm. to say, 
that the movie wouldn't be what it is without the music is, I mean, we could say that about really anything. I mean, Halloween wouldn't be what Halloween is without Mm -hmm. that (laughs) score. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of his best scores. I think it gets overlooked a lot because Mm -hmm. there's so much music, Mm -hmm. so much, like so many songs within the score, which I think are great and used brilliantly in a lot of ways. They're the voice of Christine uh, for the audience. I think the film itself is one of his best directed films uh, personally, but I also think that, you know, I think you might be onto something and that like this was a really a low point. I mean, how mm-hmm. could you make mm-hmm. the thing and be sitting in the editing room making like, you know, piecing that movie together? And then have the backlash. How like how how could that how could that not affect you? Yeah. I mean, to then and then be afraid that you know like look I might never ever make a movie again. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, my career could it's be so ridiculous over. Too the response because it's like he, especially when you look and see all the people that get second and third chances today, like and you look back at that, you're like he was literally making some of the most groundbreaking original genre movies, and for like one flop that clearly was. A, a, a marketing disaster and came out around the same time as like some of the some of the biggest blockbusters at the time in addition to an alien movie that made everyone think the creatures from the stars are going to be these lovable creatures it's it's just staggering that the reaction that universal gave to him and i'm surprised that he came and worked back i mean he he's working with him right now with halloween um yeah. it's it's I, it's i mean it's money but <laughs> i i uh i w- you know he I've heard that he doesn't particularly like the movie because he doesn't think a haunted car is scary. But to me, like that's not what's scary about the no. movie. It's mm-hmm. w- it's what the car does to Arnie that's yeah. the yeah. frightening thing. And I think the music being sad and lonely and angry, I mean, is perfect. I mean, that's what's happening in the movie. Yeah. I mean, that's mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly it's the it's the it's the per- perfect score for that movie. And mm-hmm. to Max's point, like I really don't think we can underestimate, uh, or 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 overestimate, or the importance of Alan Howarth totally. in this yeah. period of Carpenter's mm-hmm. work, because if you that Carpenter sound that we think of only exists because of Alan Howarth. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the music, the, the the melodies, and what would have been done, but all of that was coming out of Alan Howarth's dining room <laughs> Which is you know yeah it was like it was his equipment he was engineering it john would say i need us i need a sound it was alan that you know brought that sound up for john to use and then as they worked more you know he made he had maybe a little more creative input but that sound that we think of as carpenter sound because that sound like the actual physical sound not the not like the tone of the way the music is, is not in the stuff that he did with, you know, Dan Wyman beforehand. Uh Um, It's more in the stuff that he did later with Jim Lang after he left, uh, after he stopped working with Alan. But it was really Alan's ear and Alan's equipment that created the sound that we all think of as the Carpenter sound. Mm -hmm. And it's also being on the heels of uh, the thing. It is, it, it has very much the same tone, the same sound as the few cues that John did for the thing. Oh yeah. Um, which mm-hmm. is all still that same, like, uh, 
I think uh, Alan calls it the flotilla, like he, when he refers to his equipment. Oh, what was in the flotilla in 1987 <laughs> when I did this movie? Yeah, uh, so I think, you know, Alan's contribution to uh, this period of John's, car, of, uh, John's career is really important. And I, I love the score. And it's a score that he's really proud of, too, when he talks yeah. about it. Because he, uh, he closes out the shows with Christine, um, or he—I think he did. I want to—I want to say, he yeah, closed, yeah. It was—it was definitely the what he closed the shows with, and a totally different arrangement. Which mm-hmm. I wish more of the stuff in his shows he did that with. Ditto. To kind of like reimagine them for the band even more like that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's great. I what's al- it. what's also crazy that uh, how close it was to season of the witch. Um, cause there are a lot of elements of this score that especially just like the sustained keys that honestly, if you put it to, I mean, I've listened to Halloween three, the season, of the witch score is still my favorite John Carpenter score. But like I, um, when you listen to some of the sustained aspects of, um, the thing and also with, um, you know, Christine, they, I, I, I guess I never thought about it. It is really a credit to Alan Howarth because he, he does do that. Um, it, that wasn't there beforehand, um, and it certainly mm-hmm. it certainly wasn't there in his earlier works because it felt a little more bluesy, um, especially with like Assault and Precinct Thirteen, and even with um, even Halloween has like kind of bluesy effects to it if you think about it. it I mean, Halloween Two kind of really just changed everything up and revved him into a different area. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Jen, Christine, are, are you? Here's my question. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a fan of this book, and do you think it's better? Do you think the movie is better than the book or do you think the book's better than the movie? <laughs> I I have a real soft spot for this book. Um I love it. Like I love Firestarter. It's just I it's one of the ones that I went back to on audio over and over and over again. So it's probably in my I love it. I love like the friendship in this book and it's like one of the few times I think he writes about teenagers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but like it is. I I do like the movie a lot. Um, I don't think it's as good as the book, but I also really love the book. Um, but it's like there is that sadness to Arnie, and I feel like that is what he's bringing out in the score that really works. I also feel like this is kind of the story where that joke of like, oh, it's a haunted lamp mm-hmm. comes from, you know. Um, and I feel like without that Carpenter-esque sound that adds that like really sharp Michael Myers kind of menace, you know, I feel like it wouldn't work as well. Um, kind of like what I, I feel like I'm echoing what a lot of you guys are saying. But um, yeah, it really I do really like this. But if I have one problem with it, I need more honking. Like, can we incorporate the horn honking? <laughs> Like I'm like kidding. the cycle of the or uh, like the silver bullet yeah. score, you just have like exactly. that. Exactly. You'd be like Maybe. loving school. Just, just lo- at loving the end of Arnie's, the end of Arnie's love theme is just like. One of the things I will say, because this is the last time we'll be able to talk about Carpenter on this episode, but like I did love in those concerts that he did when he had the the footage of his films behind him, and one of the things that was really cool. Um, when I think about some of these these scores, because like, I just literally listen to them like they're pop at this point. But <laughs> like the fog, especially like I remember in the concert, you could see like this the point of view of Atkins in the car, and you see like her hitchhiking, and they kind of loop that a little bit. And then like with Christine, it's that scene where uh, his girlfriend's in the car, and then the light glows with the green, and yeah. or not the green, but like the, the the big like almost like oven light. Um, and it's it just added so much cool uh, mystery to it. I, I I don't know. Anyway, sorry to digress on that, but I that was just I really <laughs> loved seeing him live. I hope he goes back. But 
Um, well, look, we've, we're talking about Christine. Let's get in. Uh, let's get back into Christine. Let's leave Pittsburgh, uh, which is where Christine takes place, and let's head out to Colorado because we've got a couple entries there, our first of which, number three, The Stand by W.G. Snuffy Walden. Um, <laughs> going to go out on a limb here, kind of like I did with It Chapter 1, but I think this score might be the greatest aspect of the miniseries. I, I, I think performances aside, I think this is what – most people think about when they when they see the stand miniseries maybe that's a little bit overstated and hyperbolic uh of of a (laughs) statement but um jen what do you think (laughs) i love this one like mac when you're talking about your first encounter with stephen king as the it miniseries this was mine um and i i in the timeline of my life, I probably read more Stephen King before this, but this was what I connected to, like that little the guitar sound. You know, <laughs> I was like, that's what guitars sound like. Larry and yeah, Nadine. like <laughs> the bendy, like Western guitar yeah. is what I always think of. <laughs> but like, uh huh, <laughs> like it gets stuck in my head, and, and like you hear that, and you just see them walking down the, or riding their bikes down that road, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also love like the piano melody here oh, and yeah. like that was, this was one of the first love stories that I really connected with. And so that, like I was listening to it again today and I was like, Oh, Franny and Stu, like it just brought back so many good, <laughs> warm memories for me, you know? Um, and I think it, it has become iconic, you know, because it's so like those little tags that are just like stuck in. And I don't know if I would say it is the best part of the miniseries, but it may it's what makes it you know Mm -hmm. it's what pulls it all together and it fits the kind of like there's a little bit of a goofy tone to it and i think this absolutely right in there (laughs) yeah uh, I well, love when they it. go to Vegas, for sure. Oh, okay, yeah. So <laughs> I've, I've joked on this podcast ad nauseum about the rock and roll, like new metal aspects of this mm-hmm. score. Like when it's like, when you see trash, it's like, didn't, didn't. Mm-hmm. And like Caffrey and I just love making The fun. Trash Man in Vegas it's is so, the track. Thank you yes. very much. <laughs> oh, bad. And then the stand, the titular theme sounds like something from like Power Rangers, even though in the movie it doesn't as bad. But um, I'll, I'll digress in a little bit. But uh, Blake, what are your thoughts on uh, Snuffy Walden? Uh, you know, this was, I haven't seen the miniseries since it aired. So, uh, this was like totally, I had to go and listen to the music. Like I hadn't even thought about this. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> wow. Miniseries or this, I mean, I don't do a podcast about Stephen King. It's so. true. It's true. And Stuffy Walden really isn't a horror movie true. composer <laughs> either. So it's not like, you know, um, it would be an, uh, and I, you know, I say this as a blues musician. You know, this is, you know, it's not my favorite. You know, <laughs> I <Yeah>. like, <laughs> you know, dobros and stuff. I get it. You know, mm. it's, it is, it is what it is. I just, it, it never, I never connected to it, so I don't, I don't have like nostalgia for it the way you guys do. I also have never read the book, so uh, this one just kind of was a surprise to me. Totally fair. <laughs> I will say uh, no better time than now to read the book um, if you're looking for something uh, uh, to not make you escape <laughs> the current situation we're in. So maybe actually this isn't a right. good time to read the book. Uh, Mac, I know you love this score because we've talked about it um, yeah, nonstop. You know, this is, this is up there for me. I, I Again, 
I have to go back. If this is my childhood, you know, it was it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I remember watching The Stand, you know. Uh, this is this is like my introduction. And I feel like that piece of me, well, that, that opening, that opening twangy guitar mm-hmm. that plays whenever the, the dark man's around, uh, that... I can't remember how many times I did that with Justin growing up. <laughs> like anytime <laughs> anything bad happened, but that, you know, there's themes in this that whenever I, 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 I would say like you say you watch Halloween as a comfort watch, which yes. sometimes blows my mind. The stand <laughs> for me, <laughs> even though it's all about like this horrible plague and uh, end of the world, I, I, I find it very comforting watching this movie. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it just takes me back to a time when I was young. And I, I, you know, we, there were ABC miniseries and we were, we were watching the next part together as a family, you know, curled up around the TV watching Roblo get the shit beat out of him on the road. And, <laughs> you know, like, I, but I will say, like, one, one, one will fall by the way. I love that theme. Yeah. When they go, when the four of them go off. I would think you that's say an that's awesome piece of music? Would you say that's um, like the distillation of this this miniseries? Like it feels like the, the if like you had to like pick a emblematic track, that I think that would be it. Yeah, right? for me, yeah. And I also really like, I mean, that would definitely be it. But I also really like. Um, I don't. I'm not sure if it's Tom and Stu go home, but it's mm. it's like it's like Nick and Tom's theme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whenever they're whenever whenever they're together. Or it might be even be the M O N. Uh, I track, think it's M O N. Yeah, oh. yeah. That that is really you know like when they when they put them under um, mm-hmm. and use the hip. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I I think that that always. I hear those tracks and it just it kind of like it just makes me sad. I, yeah. I think mm-hmm. they they are. I think I'm just really connected with the miniseries, and, and I I agree. I think that, you know the miniseries has a lot of problems, but I also I think when I watched it, I, I romanticize a lot about it. But I don't yeah. think the score is one of those things. I think the score, for me, does stand on its own. Yeah. Uh, now, having said that, I think the good <laughs> outweighs the bad. There are some pretty not great tracks on yeah. this, uh, and like we said before, the Trash Man in Vegas is definitely one of them sorry <laughs> i wish matt Frewer had a better theme in this but <laughs> what can you do i know I, I mean it really does work best when it just sticks to like the rootsy americana like i i don't mm-hmm. I, I don't think it needs to i mean like the bluesy stuff when it's like late night nadine um red shoe diaries area it i guess isn't too egregious as like the stuff with trash and then also the titular at like track but I even like the Mother Abigail theme. Like, I, I know it sounds mm-hmm. like Hallmarky and whole, but like, there's such a wholesomeness to it that I just, it really gets to like the philosophies of this book for me um, yeah. and what King was trying to I get like at. But um, hey, we're sticking around in in Colorado uh, because Ooh. we're gonna go up the mountain. Uh, and if you're a, a fan of Stephen King, uh, particularly the Stanley Kubrick variety of Stephen King, uh, you're gonna be pleased to know that number two is The Shining by Wendy Carlo and Rachel Elkind and various artists. Um, not really a score. It's a soundtrack. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, Carlos had worked previously uh, with uh, Kubrick on A Clockwork Orange. Um, kind of same situation happened here uh, where most of her score hardly made it into the movie. Um, <laughs> so she vowed to never work with uh, Kubrick ever <laughs> again, uh, which is probably to her benefit considering there, I think there was only like two more movies after uh, The Shining. Uh, full metal jacket and uh, eyes wide shut and so i don't think there had been any real room there um but uh what's interesting about this when i'm doing research i didn't realize this but 
Kubrick really didn't have much uh, a say on like the the music. Like he kind of left it to um, Gordon Stanforth, um, and so I, I guess given how much of a muscle he would have over the production on every fucking facet and level, I guess that's a lot. That it says a lot about Gordon Stanforth, and and I, I think you watch this movie, and the the intricacy to how much the music informs the picture and the terror and the horror and everything that happens in this it's it's really labyrinthian and and really um uh detailed uh, and mm-hmm. i think that's one of the reasons why it, it it it's the film stays with us so much because i think it, it's kind of the same situation almost as as what happened with carpenter and halloween where i think if you watch this movie without the the music I think it would be. I wouldn't. I would say it's dull just because Kubrick's portraits are just so gorgeous. But it certainly wouldn't have the same effect. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's a. You know, ten years, fifteen years ago, they were able to pull scenes from this movie and make it a fucking rom com trailer. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, Blake, what do you consider this? I, I mean, it's, I know it's. It is a soundtrack, right? It's not a score per se, or is it kind of a mix? Uh. I mean, it's really a tough call because, you know, it really is a soundtrack, but Mm -hmm. it's used in the same way that a score is used. Mm -hmm. You know, like Quentin Tarantino, you you know, uses music, uh, uses songs as his score, but the the music has a very different uh, relationship to the movie and a role within those movies than something like this. Um, But the movies that do this are interesting and it's interesting that the the ones that come to mind are horror movies like the exorcist Mm -hmm. and uh this one you know a lot of romero's early films are are from sound libraries not using the same kind of music that those guys that Friedkin and kubrick used in their movies but uh i mean it's a perfect it's a great example of basically you know using needle drops Mm -hmm. and making them so using them in a way that's you know you identify those cues from the, those classical pieces from now on as the score for <laughs> a, a movie you know yeah. um and it's also you know something i never really thought about or or learned about until i started talking to all these composers when i was started writing the books and and the podcast and everything is that there is this whole section of classical music that you know most people will never really know about mm-hmm. like this modern classical avant-garde i mean i think most people today when we th- when they think about classical music i mean they think about film scores i mean mm-hmm. in yeah. a way mm-hmm. in a way like john williams is the classical composer <laughs> yep, <laughs> yeah totally of the last of the last 50 years even though there are classical composers still working they just there's not a platform for mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. uh so yeah. uh so you know most people never think about or learn or know about um like Ligeti and all these crazy cra- classical musicians that are creating mm-hmm. this this uh these walls of sound that uh are so perfectly suited for things like horror movies. And so it's not a surprise that when you talk to 
so many composers that you know that are known for horror movies that they quote these guys as being everyone from John Harrison you know oh, yeah. working working in, on the score for Day of the Dead which is not anything like you know this kind of music but certainly they're pulling inspiration from it in their own way to guys like Harry Manfredini or Chris Young um so i mean yeah is it a score you know, I'm sure there's just justifiable like arguments for either position. Uh, what is the most important thing is that it works. I mean, mm-hmm. it works in, mm-hmm. the, in the movie. It's part. Of, it's it's a it works as a storytelling device, and it works to aid the picture and the narrative in a in a in a brilliant way. And it's you know like I need score. Or music. I mean, it's one of the things that makes this movie what it is and why it's so iconic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with what you're saying about it being the modern classical music because um, I, I taught elementary music for 13 years and I would teach a lot of classical music and I would always start with film scores because the kids connected to that really quickly because they had, they like, I would play the Harry Potter theme and they would know immediately what it was. Um, but there, but I mean, if you think about what classical music is that a lot of that was opera and like symphonies that people would go see back then before movies existed. So it's sure. kind of just this interesting like trajectory that we've had with that type of music. And then I would move to also Sprax Zarathustra and they would, I don't know, I think, oh, it's, um, uh, oh gosh, the other Kubrick movie that's escaped. Oh, 2001. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, it's Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> 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 like, oh, <laughs> um, but they got it, you know? And I like to speak, like to talk about this one, I have got a lot of thoughts about the shining, um, for mm-hmm. another day but the, what I love about it is the opening um, it's my favorite part that that five minutes where he's like driving on the mountain road and like the the angles are shifting and it just feels so unstable and like if you look at this like this theme it's the dun, 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 dun. it's so like bizarre as what you would think of as like a score or a theme or like a soundtrack because it's just like this really plodding like low brass um like quarter notes the way it plays with meter I think really kind of puts you in this unsteady feeling you know and I think it's so empty that it like it, it like speaks to the coldness of that movie that I think it's just it's perfect and as many problems as I have with this movie this is the thing that really works for me yeah. and then there's the ooh, like the icy like <laughs> soundscape kind of thing you know that I think goes into that cold feeling too yeah uh Mac yeah uh, no I I agree with what everybody's been saying pretty much I I the incidental music for this movie is what always sticks with me mm-hmm. and I think you know um obviously that opening's fantastic and yes the icy the icy stings at the end of some of the stanzas and things like that that weird unsettling you know you're like oh this is a movie about a family that goes to a hotel and then you know things happen but (laughs) but i would not have you know i you're you're immediately setting the tone of this film (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. i I mean like like hardcore yeah. <laughs> like, oh, or like you can't just change up the score or the mood with this movie after that opening. you know? Right. <laughs> but and I think it's great, though. And I think that, you know, I listen to a lot of classical music when I'm working just to have something on in the background. And it's uh, it is sad that there there isn't really like a huge 
uh, medium or outlet for that other than other than film I feel um, mm-hmm. and I definitely I think that's why I love scores so much because that that kind of music really speaks to me uh, mm-hmm. so hearing uh, classical music repurposed and used for for things like this this is it was like perfect for me as when I first watched this film because I really it really inspired me to try to to want to, to, to I guess the interest in, in film and, and, and music and film uh, because you know then then I was really paying attention to things you know I, I remember <laughs> this is totally off slightly off topic but I remember when uh, the movie X-Men was coming out okay <laughs> and the X-Men score came in um, yeah it came in but but in the trailer Oh it was yeah, not, it's not Cayman. <laughs> and the trailer they use some of uh, the score from Dark City, mm-hmm. and I remember hearing that music and thinking, "Oh my God! Like this is this is gonna be fucking awesome! You know, this is gonna be great!" And then Justin was like, "Oh no, no, no! That's the theme from Dark City." And I was like, "Oh no!" And I remember Cayman's <laughs> Cayman's score is like okay. I, I I'm so sad that that I think that was like his last score too, and I didn't really love that. But I I just. It, to me, it was like, oh, I'm really listening to, I'm really listening to the scores now, and getting more excited about that. Um, when I see trailers to films and things like that, like it, it, I think if the music's good, that is like my in to like my interest is peaked. Uh-huh. And I, I think I think The Shining was one of those movies where I listened to that when I saw it, and I I really started picking up on the music more and. And how that worked in storytelling and whatnot. And so, yeah, I love this one. Um, it, you know, again, it, it's hard for me to separate it from from the film, but I, I do have a soft spot in my my heart for this movie. This is not, I wouldn't say it's a comfort watch, but uh, <laughs> mm. it, it's it's the kind of thing I like to disappear into. Yeah. Sure. Mm. Oh, totally. I mean, whenever it plays in the music box, I I, I try to go to see it, um, even if oh, I've yeah, watched it recently on like AMC or something. But uh. What I like about this soundtrack for me, it's just like the, histo- the, you know, the history background. And for me, uh, really kind of comes out when I like, li- like go to Kubrick movies, because like I grew up like just worshiping 2001 a space odyssey. And I-, I remember like just sitting there with my brother, like fucking building sets from uh, the movie on with Legos. And my dad would just walk in. And he's like, Oh, what are my, you know, what are my sons up to? And I'd be like sitting there building like the monolith with like black Lego pieces with the 2001 <laughs> playing in the background the movie and then also the soundtrack <laughs> playing there with like the uh, i'm sure he just thought like great i have a cult for kids um but uh <laughs> i you know so that was i, I but i love the history of going through all these tracks and and, and kind of like what blake was saying is like being able to learn a little bit about the composers like people that, that, that had, none of this music was ever supposed to be destined for film and yet i mm-hmm. can never not think about the, the films because of these you know because of this music and honestly like Penzarecki like is pretty much almost like the main composer for The Shining I mean most of the stuff that really gets you in this film and gets really under your skin is all his works um I, I mean especially like when everything starts going to shit uh towards the end and you're just like all of a sudden just having these like punctuated noises and it just really gets at you so I I, I don't know I, I love that but I will say the OG tracks that that um, that did make it in from, um, you know, from, from Carlos, uh, are, are just awesome. Like Rocky mountains is like so hypnotic. I love Lonato, especially when it starts off with, uh, the sort of, um, outdoor sounds in there. They're just really, um, really hypnotic 
in uh, horrifying mm. ways. And, you know, of course, there's Midnight, The Stars, and You, which became, I guess, the de facto theme, thanks to Dr. Sleep. But um, <laughs> anyway, let's let's move on to number one. Uh, I think you already know at this point what is number one just by, you know, the powers of deduction. But uh, and the fact <laughs> that I mentioned his name earlier, uh, Thomas Newman's The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Jen, I'm tossing this over to you first because I know <laughs> you are just love this theme. So go. I go really ahead. do. Yeah, this is the one I took a walk today and I just listened to this on the loop. Um, it's I love this music and I really love the movie too. I know it's a little schmaltzy, but it just oh, it's so good. Um, like it it perfectly fits the tones of this movie. Like there's. <clears throat> Some of the strings have like a a really thin edge to them, you know, that kind of like reminds me of like Depression era fiddle kind of. And then like with the like there's the empty part where it's like the bass and then those violins. And I think that just like really kind of evokes the feeling of prison and like there's this hopelessness to it. And then like the the iconic part that we all know. I'm sorry, I'm getting really excited because I love talking about this music, Um, like with the timpani and it just like swells and it's just so like triumphant and nostalgic and sweet at the same time. I feel like the way he plays with like suspension and resolution, I think really works with this movie and the story too. I think this, I I don't think it's the best part of the movie, but I think this is what makes this movie so memorable and so great. Um, And then I, I don't know if this would technically count, but the duet that they, that he plays when he like breaks into the office, you know, that is so beautiful. And it's just the, the music, it it really brings the heart to this story. And as much as I love the novella, like that, I feel like that's a little bit lacking in the actual novella that is really brought out in the movie by this. Um, And I also, um, it's, it's needle dropped in uh, Lovecraft country, I think, oh, unless that was a placeholder. Yeah, it's like that big timpani swell. Um, it's like one of the later episodes. We'll have to see if they just it was a placeholder. But I was like, oh, my God. Mm, like, I think I texted you freaking out when I you heard did. It. You did. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like all caps. That's Shawshank. I just love it so much. This is one of my favorites of all time. Well, I, like, um, I, I also love how like they brought Thomas Newman back for Castle Rock, the show, well, at least in the mm. first season, because they go back to you know Shawshank and all. But um, I always thought that was kind of I thought that was a nice touch because it mm-hmm. is it is so tied uh, to that. I mean, it's it's always going to be it's, like, these themes are yeah. always going to be tied to whatever. Even if they mention Shawshank in one of the stories, um, I think about that theme immediately. Um, mm-hmm. But sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no, that's okay. I could, I mean, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> it's, I love it. So, yeah. Well, Mac, I know your blo- your brother is like, just absolutely adores this movie. What, what are your thoughts on this and uh, your feelings for the score by, by uh, Mr. Newman? Uh, this is, this is my number one. I think that it is pretty perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, I just, I, I, sometimes I forget, you know, how much I love the score. I, you know, I just put on the, it was a track two, the stoic theme. Yeah, you know? that's my, that's um, my, I love that theme. That just exudes this mood that just mm-hmm. like, uh, it just pull, it sucks me in and I'm, I'm there. I'm uh-huh. like, right, I, I, it made me want to watch the movie. Me too. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I, I had no, and, and it was funny. I, I just, I listened to that. I was like, oh wow. I was like, yeah, I forgot how fucking good this music is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And, and. You know, he 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 just has a way of, and I think it's also, it's like the Darabont 
tri you know I would say trifecta with King and Newman and and this I mm -hmm. think that it just hits it on the head mm -hmm. and I think the score really punches those moments in this mm -hmm. um that uh, even if it's like an understated moment I think that the score is like it perfectly goes along with this film and um yeah, I I love it. I think it's a it's just a great piece of work. Mm -hmm. Blake, uh, you know, like you can't, uh, you know, the Thomas Newman is is one of the greats, one of the guys that very rarely gets talked about, but mm -hmm. uh, he's done all kinds of stuff. You know, whether it's, you know. Gung Ho by Ron Howard <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to Shawshank you know it's um, you know it's it's kind of the perfect example of you know what I think traditionally is thought of as film music and it mm -hmm. works in a very traditional way and that is not a negative I mean it it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's memorable. It's beautiful. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's interesting you put together a list like this. It doesn't, a list like this doesn't just uh, shine a light on some of the uh, eclecticness, if that's a, a, a word, of <laughs> we'll go with King's it. Yeah. work. Yeah. But of mm -hmm. the of the of the way it's of the way those his stories are approached both cinematically and musically i mean if you look at the 10 scores we're we're talking about i mean like almost none of none of them are similar mm -hmm. <laughs> oh god no yeah, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know uh they're, they're all whether they're classical or synth based they're all or blues based they all have a very distinct identity and it's um I mean, this is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great film and it's, you know, beloved by so many and the score is such a huge part of that. And it, and it does give that film an identity. And I agree with Michael mm -hmm. to then have him come back and work on Castle Rock is kind of was brilliant because yeah. it's such a look at such a part of, of, of what we think about when we, when we think about Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, I was thinking about that, like how underrated Newman is in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and I was thinking about that with, I, I believe he did the score for 1917 this past year, which is like a pretty great score. And mm -hmm. and yeah, I was did. like, I couldn't believe, and I don't think he's won an Oscar yet. I, I, I got to look at, I, I, I got to go back and look because he might have won for American Beauty. I, I just don't think he did though. Um, but he, when you think about majesty in film scores, I mean, there's a bunch of examples, but like, I don't know if there's a finer example than this. I mean, it's so fucking uh -huh. iconic. Like, I mean, it's so iconic that like, it's one of those things where the the music just transcends the actual source. Where, like, mm -hmm. when I think of this theme or any of the themes in this, um, be it the Stoic theme or the end titles or uh, even the opening, it's so synonymous with like themes of freedom and liberation mm -hmm. and triumph and injustice and like 
I mean, God, it, it's kind of hard to top that. So I, I, I do. Th- I'm glad that this is number one because I, d- it would have been really weird to have it at like four and be like, <laughs> all right, well, we're going to uh, the, you know, the shining. But, but it, you know, to what Blake said, I, I, what I do love about this and what I, what, have, what we, we've been trying to hammer since the very beginning of this podcast is the eclecticness of Stephen King or eclecticism, whatever it is. You know, he is, I mean, and he proves that with this novella in this collection, different seasons. I mean, you, re- when you read that collection, it's impossible to really look back at and, and just say, Oh, he's the master of horror. Well, no, he mm-hmm. is actually just a master of writing. He's great. Yeah. And he can do a lot and he could flex different muscles. And, um, and so I, 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 I yeah, I didn't even really think about that with, with assembling this, the, this list of the scores. It's, I'm glad it does uh, show that and provide that because I think if there's anything that, that this podcast should try to hammer down at the end of the day is uh, the multifacetedness of uh, Stephen King. And uh, it's certainly there, but um, look, there you have it. I mean, those <laughs> are the best scores of all time. Uh, no ifs, ands or buts about it. Um, <laughs> this was certainly the panel to decide on it. And, uh, and now it's scripture. <laughs> um, you could leave your comments in the cards provided outside in the lobby. Uh, but here, wait a second. Let's hear what, <laughs> our listeners voted for specifically our uh, our patrons uh, a couple of weeks ago i asked all our patrons to vote for their favorite king score and uh their top five are the shining at number one with uh, a whopping 40 votes um and there was a lot of discussion similar to what we had about whether it's a score or soundtrack um uh but we ultimately contended that it was it's fair game uh f- followed by the the shawshank redemption with only 11 so <gasps> clearly everyone went all in uh, with the Overlook. Um, and uh, Stand By Me with 10, it Chapter 1 with 7, and The Dead Zone with 4. And there was a lot of other comments with, because I had other in there because I just couldn't list every one of them, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that we had on, uh, that we had in that, uh, that sheet. So it's, you know, you're a, if you remember the, the Barons here, take a look in there. There's a lot of great comments in there, uh, some great discussions as always with all of you constant listeners. Um, but, uh, you know, this was fun. I, I, I thought, I thought this was good. I didn't realize that, uh, I mean, I guess I should have known that, uh, the uh, losers club episode is going to go almost two hours. I apologize. Blake. <laughs> <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much for joining with us tonight and sitting with us. Uh, uh, what do you have coming up? I mean, you've already discussed, uh, score to death too. Um, replug it again if you want, but what else, what else you got coming up? Uh, that much just still uh <laughs> plugging away at uh, doing saturday night movie sleepovers podcast uh we've cut back to once a month um you know we'll see what nice. happens uh but uh i think we just did bill and ted's excellent adventure and, timely uh, <laughs> we actually just did a uh kind of what we call a side cast and we ended up revisiting terminator for our uh. <gasps> for a little bit um, we're coming up on our anniversary so i think i think our sixth anniversary is coming up in september wow and uh Congrats. Nice. that's awesome <laughs> you know so uh i don't know we're just plugging away otherwise i'm just trying to get this book out the door so i can uh work on the next one well you gotta let me know when it's done because we can get you back on the pod and we can talk about it a little <laughs> bit more this is yes, i'm very I excited will, i will I will be making the rounds. I gotta gotta sell some books. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, uh, uh, where can they find you on your socials? Uh, at scored to death on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, 
Facebook and nice. uh, also at Sat Sleepovers is uh, for the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers podcast. Definitely check them out. They're a total blast. Uh, one of my favorite alternate pods when I'm not uh, hosting, recording, or editing them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it was a great gym listen, uh, that and uh, the, the Horror Virgin when I used to go to gyms uh, and now I don't. So <laughs> I listen to podcasts when I go to the grocery store, which means I have five minutes to listen to it. But uh um, definitely check them out. And uh, Jen, what's next on psychoanalysis? Uh, well, depending on when this drops, our episode tonight. on toxic <laughs> tonight. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, then you've only got one more day, <laughs> or tomorrow. Um, <laughs> either one. Whenever I get it done. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty ambitious. Um, so we're on Thursday of this week. We are dropping our second episode on toxic and abusive relationships. We're talking about the Invisible Man, um, and I am biased, but I think it's really good. It goes some heavy places, but I think we we. I really think it's great. I think we have an episode on Midsummer with toxic and abusive relationships too. And um, great I think up. they're good. Yeah. yeah and uh, this just kind of continues it. I think we kind of hit onto something with this one. Um, and then we just recorded our sinister episode where we're going to talk about paranoia. So that was really fun. Um, oh, and then cool. I'm frantically trying to finish insomnia to, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. to record that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's coming up in a yeah. very, very soon. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm like, oh, geez, how many pages do I have left? <laughs> where can uh, where, the, where can our uh, listeners find you, Jen? I, I, most of them already follow you, but uh, yeah. t- plug away. You, um, you can find me on all the socials at Jim Ferratu, Um And you can follow Psychoanalysis at PsychoAPod on all of the socials. And we've got a couple of Facebook groups that you can join in and kind of share your thoughts in a private moderated group, too. Um, so yeah, check us out. I, I'm really digging it. I think the reception has been good and I'm really excited. It's been great. Yeah. I'm, I'm loving this show. Um, Mac, yeah. what's going down in Halloween town? Well, I got to say, if you're not tired of Mike and I yet, <laughs> head over to Halloween town, <laughs> uh, where the Halloweenies are hanging out, talking about <laughs> movies like Jason lives and what I'm, I'm really excited because I'm on this next one, new blood. <laughs> Uh, as well as uh, we've just started a Patreon. So we're going to be uh, covering Near Dark, as we mentioned earlier, which I'm really excited about. Um, big vampire head over here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Mike, uh, I believe, will yeah. be um, jumping on the commentary track for Ooh. American Werewolf in London. Yeah. So uh, if, you, if, you, if that, any of that sounds good to you, uh, hop onto our socials, and I'm sure you can find our Patreon, our link to our Patreon. Well, uh, but uh, if not, then uh, just listen to the episodes that are free. <laughs> yeah. uh, such, and we're covering uh, <laughs> the Friday the 13th series throughout the rest of the year. And, uh, and, and I, I'm not sure if we've finally decided about next year, but... We haven't yet. I just I th- like teasing that. Yeah. <laughs> I just like throwing that out there. We don't know what we're doing yet, but, uh, but if you like what we've already done, you'll probably like it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean... The ones that we've been kicking around for 2021 are interesting, but everything's so up in the air, uh, yeah. hashtag George Clooney, that I, I have to wonder <laughs> what God. we're going to cover because just we try to tie it to something. Obviously, mm-hmm. the last two seasons have been not tied to anything because Nightmare on Elm Street has been <laughs> yeah, pretty dead and say, so yeah. is Friday the 13th. But, um, you know, we got a lot going on uh, next next year. So just follow us Halloween East Pad uh, and you'll find some announcements. But uh What's going on for the Losers Club? Well, things are rolling right along, quite literally, in fact. Uh, You're going to hear us next this Friday in our exclusive Patreon episode. What's the topic? Well, Disney World, Universal Studios, Knott's Berry Farm, 
you better watch out because you're going to have to get ready for King's Dominion. Now, I'm going to backpedal for a second because I do realize there's an actual theme park called uh, King's Dominion. Uh, it's by Paramount Pictures in Virginia. <laughs> but we're going to take it back, baby. We are going to be playing Theme Park Tycoon with Stephen King lore. And it's going to be one wild ride. We've got ideas. We've got blueprints. And the imagination is going to be laid bare in what is sure to be a quote-unquote high-octane thrill ride of an episode. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, stick around for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And it's going to have a lot of your ideas because, uh, Sam, you put out a, uh, a prompt, I think, two weeks ago maybe. And we just got so many good responses that we decided to push back the George Romero uh, Living Dead book um review and just go all in on the theme park thing because it's just there's so many good ideas and we thought it would be such a fun episode so uh we got that on friday um and then next week uh, or we got the book episode for insomnia so uh that's gonna be dropping on friday august 28th in our regular feed so if you've been itching to go back to dairy well there you are uh in the meantime uh, we love, 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 love your support here in the Barrens. But if you haven't already, please, 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 please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we'd love if you could just give us some bright red Pennywise clown noses. Come on, just give it to your favorite, <laughs> your devoted, your only losers club. But look, we've been here for way too long and we have to get going. So <laughs> until then, we'll be seeing you over long days. And, and pleasant, pleasant nights. Nice. <laughs> All right. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. <laughs>